You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. And I actually have a special ad for the Patreon that's silly and stupid that I'm going to read now in in, in, uh, in honor of the Memorial Day weekend. So here is my ad read for Patreon. <clears throat> this Memorial Day weekend, while drivers compete in the Indianapolis 500 in my hometown of Speedway, Indiana, you should race on over to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and take advantage of our 500 miles worth of bonus content. There are no yellow flags or cautions when you sign up for the, at the $1 level, as you'll get instant access to over 130 B-roll episodes recorded specifically for Patreon supporters. You can also be part of our pit crew by signing up for the $2 Patreon level for additional access to TV reviews and reaction episodes, and follow that checkered flag by joining our $5 Patreon level for additional access to full-length movie commentary tracks provided by yours truly, with occasional call-ins from the Obsessive Viewer co-hosts. But why stop there? Take your victory lap by signing up for the $10 level to get access to everything I've said, plus early access to episodes and more unreleased content. So again, race on over to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's my ad read. Um, it's silly. I, I'm I'm having a little bit of fun just writing out these ridiculous uh, Patreon ad reads that uh, I think I'm going to do more frequently. So anyway, yeah, that, that's my pitch for Patreon. Check it out. Um, I'm currently, uh, if you guys uh, are subscribed to the podcast, I'm currently... Um, releasing bonus episodes uh, for the Amazon Prime sci-fi anthology show uh, Solos, which if you pledge $10 on Patreon, you'll get access to all seven of those right now. Um, So right now, I've released two on the main feed, but if you sign up at $10, you get instant access to all of them. I'm going to do that um, in the future, too, with my upcoming uh, bonus episode series on Electric Dreams, finally. Um, and yeah, so check that out. Um, and then also for uh, the $2 level, um, I'm going to be reviewing Lisey's story each week and also Loki. And I also have individual episode recordings for me talking about Superstore, the complete series, Rutherford Falls, the first season, and every individual episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, so anyway, that's all just to say that there's a ton of content over at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And so yeah, and all of the money that I make, uh, on Patreon goes to pay the fees to keep the podcast running. So it's greatly appreciated and helps uh, keep me going with all of this nonsense. Okay. So my, uh, my please, my, my pleas for money out of the way, I'm going to get into this episode of anthology. And today on the show, I'm going to be discussing the midnight sun. It's the 10th episode of the twilight zones, third season. And it aired on November 17th, 1961, and I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief, spoiler-free review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 18, The World Below, which I believe is available on YouTube, and there's also, um, it's also available on Daily Motion, which I have a link to that in the show notes of this episode if you 
want to watch that episode of Science Fiction Theater. And so, uh, with all of the housekeeping out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and go into my review, and I'm going to start that off, as I usually do, with a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And just for warning, I'm going to be spoiling The Midnight Sun right now, so um, if you haven't seen The Midnight Sun, uh, make sure you watch it and then come back and uh, listen to this episode. Okay, spoiler warning out of the way, here's the plot summary courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Case study of a frightened breed known as mankind, doomed to death because as the scientists theorize, the Earth left its orbit and is moving slowly toward the sun. All of the residents of Mrs. Bronson's apartment house have made an attempt to migrate north except for Norma, a young woman with a passion for painting. As the hours and days pass, the radio announcer uh, states uh, starts to lose his marbles. The landlady acts like a wild animal over a cool drink. The electric power stays off for length, uh, lengthier periods of time. And in one instance, a looter barges into Norma's apartment, driven out of his mind by the pre- fr- from the present situation. The windowsill burns to the touch while Norma cannot paint anything other than the hot sun against the backdrop of a doomed civilization. Eventually, the heat is too much when the thermometer explodes, the oils on the canvas start to melt, and Norma screams before collapsing to her death. Waking to discover the whole affair was nothing but, uh, nothing but a feverish, bad dream, Norma is relieved. In reality, the Earth has left its orbit and is heading away from the sun, and each day will continue to get colder as mankind is doomed to extinction. Um... So, uh, yeah, so this very, um, (laughs) this very, uh, bright and, um, uh, very positive, uh, episode, (laughs) it stars Lois Nettleton as Norma. This was her first and only episode of The Twilight Zone, and she also appeared in a segment in Night Gallery in 1972 titled I'll Never Leave You Ever. And some other science fiction uh, credits on her uh, resume are one episode of The Flash in 1990 and one episode of Babylon 5 in 1994. Co-starring as Mrs. Bronson is Betty Gard. This is her second of two episodes of The Twilight Zone. We previously saw her as a passenger on The Odyssey of Flight 33. And her other science fiction credits include two episodes of One Step Beyond. And rounding out the cast is... Tom Reese as The Intruder. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did have some other science fiction credits, including one episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, one episode of Wonder Woman, and one episode of Knight Rider. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling, with director being Anton, uh, Anton <laughs> Leader. Uh, this was his second of two Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw his work in Long Live Walter Jameson back in season one. And he uh, also directed one episode of Star Trek and two episodes of Lost in Space. Um, if you want some other science fiction credits of his. <laughs> um, okay, so with the talent rundown out of the way... I am going to get into my review of the episode, and what I usually do, as I will now, is uh, talk about what I knew about the episode beforehand, since the whole kind of idea of this podcast is to share my first impressions and my thoughts on The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. So what I knew before going into The Midnight Sun was that um, I thought that it centered on two women in a place where the sun never sets, and maybe the heat gradually increases. And I also knew that it was adapted into a graphic novel, which I haven't read. Um, I've just kind of been bombarded with a lot of stuff that I want to do for uh, Patreon and and all the podcasts and everything. So 
Um, my time is a little limited, so I, I didn't really read the graphic novel. Um, I'm 99% sure that I own it. Um, so maybe I'll circle back and read it at some point. But anyway, that's the extent of what I knew about The Midnight Sun. So I'm going to go into my proper review now. And I just want to say, first of all, first and foremost, um, that description, uh, that plot summary from Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, I, I watched this episode several times and I don't think I understand or got the um, impression that Mrs. Bronson was the landlady. Well, I guess maybe, maybe since, uh, Norma asks her if she locked the roof, I mean, that would make sense, but that's the only kind of, uh, indication that I can think of for it. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. Also, I did appreciate the opening or the, the plot summary. Um, it's, it just, it seems like, uh, Martin Grahams Jr. wrote it with, like Serling's voice in mind. Um, so like it starts with case study. I'm going to try to do a Serling impression. So I apologize if I offend, um, cause I'm not a good impressionist or anything, but, um, here's my read of the plot summary, or at least a portion of it with a slight Serling affectation case study of a frightened breed known as mankind doomed to death because as the scientists theorize, the earth left its orbit and is moving slowly toward the sun. All of the residents of Mrs. Bronson's apartment house have made an attempt to migrate north, except for Norma, a young woman with a passion for painting. I'm going to stop there, but I actually think that was a really good impression. <laughs> uh, please don't at me if I'm wrong, but I, I was actually kind of proud of that. Um, okay, so anyway, so this episode, The Midnight Sun, it begins with um, a, a kind of dialogueless opening scene and this sequence is indicative of the episode as a whole and the fact that it is incredibly well written um and i kind of think that when i say that i like when i say that something is well written um there is a tendency for like when people people talk about the writing of an episode or writing of a movie or something and they think oh dialogue 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 but obviously in this medium writing is a lot more than just dialogue and the way that everything is communicated to us and the way that the kind of world building is told through both um just visuals in the episode and dialogue as an addition is just an example of phenomenal writing in this episode i think that it is a very a very rich episode in terms of characterization and world building. It's, it's just really remarkable. And it kind of all starts with that look of the sun out the window, um, against the backdrop of the city. And it's one of the few exterior shots of the episode itself, but it just communicates so much because the actual sun isn't just this orb in the sky. It's like, it's, it's like a glowing star, like star shaped. Obviously it's the sun, it's a star. Yeah. But it's, it's like, it's shaped like a star and it has this like shallow depth of field and this, this very blurry kind of way that it's just communicating the, the heat visually in such a unique way. And I think that that's, that's really remarkable, especially, I don't know if I would say, especially for a black and white show, um, because obviously there's lighting effects and everything that, that go into black and white, but there's something very, um, very indicative or very, very detailed about the shots of the sun out the window. It is just so, um, 
ominous and the the kind of filmmaking techniques of it even though it's just a standard shot and everything uh, are remarkable and tell you so much about what's going on and it's coupled by the set design and the um the set of Norma's apartment showing the thermostat and it's reading out literally like uh, like it's 105 or 110 degrees and then the window AC blasting and everything it's all just very good atmosphere and really great visual storytelling and it's a really great way to bring us into this to this episode and so we see Norma painting in her apartment and again i just I think one of the biggest strengths of this episode is that it I really, really like the way and appreciate the way that it just exists in its world. Like, there's no setup. It's just in progress. And it's communicated to us in so many different ways. Just the heat is so visible um, throughout the entire episode. And even the soundtrack has this... Um, this really great rhythm to it that feels like it's a countdown. It feels like it is just gradually like making us tense for what these characters are about to endure and are enduring and will endure in their, you know, doomed existence in this world. Um, it's just, it's really great. So also there's a note to the soundtrack that I don't know much of anything about music, but, um, there's like a certain note that's played and it's kind of held down um, in long stretches in the soundtrack that reminds me so much of the the music from The Outer Limits, actually, the opening theme of The Outer Limits. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I just think that that's obviously a coincidence. I don't know if um, The Outer Limits kind of took a cue from that or if it shares, um, in terms of the music, uh, anything. Any, similarities or anything but uh shout out to my friend victor's podcast check out the outer limits podcast um super excited for him to bring to be doing more episodes and everything so check that out uh anyway uh so this so the the soundtrack kind of doesn't amp up but it's present and then there's this other this other shot of the sun and this time instead of it being from the perspective of the window and with the backdrop of the city skyline, um, this is a close up of the shun, uh, of the shun of the sun, <laughs> and I just feel like that's just such a good expansion of the tone that's already been introduced like thirty seconds before. Um, it just really, really brings us into this very intense um, kind of feel, and it's very subtle because you just see you get one shot of the sun from a distance and then you get one that it fills most of the frame as the actual sun. Um, I just thought that that was really, really good. Um, really cool, just visual expansion of the atmosphere of the episode. So Norma gets up and gets a glass of water and there's obviously implication that water may be incredibly scarce. Um, the way that she's kind of licking her lips says just so much about her desire for, you know, hydration. (laughs) Um, and when she takes the, when she takes the bottle out of the, of the refrigerator, um, she just very carefully pours it in the glass. And it's very clear that she's rationing the water because she just pours just a very small amount. And again, all of that is good world building, good set design, good acting, um, showing us, not telling us anything. Um, it just communicates so much to us. And even the way that she just very, very lightly sips at the water is just communicating so much because she needs to make this last. 
And then so we get a knock at the door and it's a kid, little, little neighbor Susie. And uh, again, this continues this kind of very silent type of uh, storytelling with the kids saying nothing, but kind of glancing down at the glass of water. And so Norma like kneels down and she gives the little girl some water. But then that's when uh, her father, Mr. Schuster, um, stops her and says, oh, don't, don't take, don't take her water and everything. And then Norma says, it's all right, Mr. Schuster, I have plenty. And then he just kind of bites back and says, no one has plenty. Um, and then he reveals to Norma and then to Mrs. Bronson that they're leaving. They're, uh, going to try to get to Toronto, uh, presumably for a colder climate, um, because Mr. Schuster has like a cousin up there or something. And first of all, I just want to say, I don't, I, I don't know. I didn't, I'm surprised I didn't see this in any, um, trivia or anything, but I think that this is the same set, uh, used for Nightmare as a Child back in season one and also the big tall wish and maybe also one for the angels. Um, so I, I don't know. It just looks incredibly similar, but you know, um, actually now that I think about it and also maybe static, but um, I'm trying to think because the stairs were different, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So they're trying to get to Toronto and Mrs. Bronson ref- like says like, oh, yeah, you maybe that's not a good idea because the radio says that the traffic is bumper to bumper on the highways and with it being a gas shortage and everything, um, that's probably not a good idea. And Mr. Schuster had also reference that they were able to get a bunch of gas and everything. And this is kind of the beginning of Mrs. Bronson as a character and her kind of main character trait in the episode is her being uh, very cautious and, and I wouldn't even say cautious, more anxious about everything and filled with dread. And this is her kind of looking at um, every piece, every, everything that happens um in terms of this fatalistic and and dire kind of uh, um, viewpoint, with this dire uh, viewpoint and everything, which, I mean, makes sense because they are all literally doomed. <laughs> so, uh, again, I just really like the world building through through dialogue now. Like, we're getting world building through dialogue. She's telling him that it's bumper to bumper. And, like, this is where, like, the episode has spent the last couple of minutes, really, because um, it's very, very short amount of time, and it's told us so much through just visuals. And now we're getting actual context for what's going on, but we're it's still being held back. We're still not told what exactly is going on. We just know that it is the apocalypse. We know that it's Armageddon, um, and that everything is is dire and everyone's going to die. But we don't know why yet, but we get the impression of how like the tone of what's going on incredibly clear um through the dialogue in uh in this scene in the the set or the uh visuals leading up to the dialogue scenes so uh mr schuster and mrs schuster are talking to norma and mrs uh, bronson and there's this kind of congeniality to the neighbor's conversation with them um because Mr. Schuster says, it's been nice living here, you're good neighbors. And it's just, this is our first hint of this communal aspect to the apocalypse in this episode. It's very, it's very much, as as I'll demonstrate through my review as I go along with it, um, it's very much just steeped in like, this is humanity's crisis. This is humanity at the end of its life, and this is the planet at the end of its life. And so... 
in that respect, there is this communal aspect of, of shared trauma throughout every person in this episode. Even though it's a very small amount of, uh, like a small cast of characters, it still very much feels like, it still very much feels like a communal experience um, among the cast of characters. And I think that's really just a brilliant touch on the part of Serling. Um, so the Schusters leave and now only the two women are left in the building, Mrs. Bronson and Norma. And also, so Mrs. Bronson says, um, and now we are two. And it's weird because I think that that's a literary reference of some kind, but I can't place it and Google failed me. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a reference to something in literature or if it's just a way of uh, like just a. I don't know, way of saying something. But uh, if it is, I, I kind of feel like it's some kind of reference that I'm, I am I wasn't picking up on. But I don't know. Anyway, um, if you have an answer for what, it, what, if anything, that is, let me know. So uh, we get more exposition through dialogue with Mrs. Bronson saying that they're, that the radio said that they're only going to turn on the water one, per, one hour per day and that they would announce when that is. And at this point, I just, I really love the way that the plot was unfolding. And I, I, it just, again, gives us so much information through context and creates such a lived in world. And I feel like just the writing is incredibly well done. And it's a, it creates this very immersive, uh, post-apocalyptic slash in progress apocalyptic story and world. And I just, I just appreciate this episode, um, immensely for that reason. Um, and also at this point, um, <laughs> uh, I, in my first viewing and subsequent viewings, I paused it to get a big old glass of water, um, because this episode is incredibly effective at, uh, at setting up its, you know, the, the heat of it all, um, which is, is, is incredible. Um, I actually, in preparation of prepping this episode today, I refilled my giant, uh, Brita filter, pitcher so I would have plenty of water um because the tap water here sucks anyway so um uh Mrs. Bronson asks why Norma doesn't leave and Norma says that she has this crazy thought that she'll wake up in a cold bed and none of this would have happened and that kind of wistful way that she speaks is absolutely haunting um she says I'll wake up in a cold bed or in a cool bed and it'll be night outside and a cool wind and she says something about bristling the trees and everything. It's just, it's so haunting and fatalistic and, and tragic. Um, this episode is steeped so much in tragedy and just pain um, and, and fear of, of what's to come, which is, when I say what's to come, it means it, like what's to come is an agonizing death for all of humanity. <laughs> um, this is an incredibly, incredibly bleak episode. Um, it's just, it is so, so dire. And as she's talking, um, she's referencing, uh, the outside world and we get really our only shot of the, uh, of the exterior, like streets and everything. This is a completely interior shot thing with a few choice, um, shots of the sun and everything, but we get our one exterior shot that shows, um, the street outside of the apartment house that has, uh, just abandoned cars and debris and, and even that one shot, that one simple shot is so amazing at the world building. And it, it with the dialogue being so on point and the, um, the actions of the characters being so, um, effective in telling us the story so far, this 
one shot of the exterior with the abandoned car and the debris on the street is really all that we need. And it's all the exposition we need uh, in we need in order to know just how dire the situation is. Because, again, the dialogue and the writing is so effective in this episode. So that's when Mrs. Bronson um, <laughs> kind of uh, solidifies what's happening uh, for the audience. She talks, she talks about how the world is moving closer to the sun. And again, uh, or I think this is the first time I'm saying this, uh, this episode, but this is such a cool concept. Um, it is very interesting. I don't know if the science really uh, stands up to it, but I'm not going to nitpick that at all because I am not a scientist, but I buy into the concept because it's written so beautifully and so powerfully, powerfully. And also, um, if I were, <laughs> if I were still doing, um, bonus episodes or bonus reviews for movies or shows related to the episode, um, instead of doing science fiction theater reviews, Sunshine would have made for a really good bonus review for this episode, which is crazy because I think I reviewed it as a bonus episode or a bonus review, um, and like episode 18 or something of the podcast. I don't know. Um, but anyway, Sunshine would have been great. I do have, at the $5 level on Patreon, a commentary track for Sunshine, so check that out if you want to check out Patreon. Anyway, um, so Mrs. Bronson is talking, and she says that that's the reason that the, or that the sun, the earth moving closer to the sun is why we're, why, and then she trails off. And that's when we get the opening narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. That's why. The word that Mrs. Bronson is unable to put into the hot, still, sodden air is doomed. Because the people you've just seen have been handed a death sentence. One month ago, the Earth suddenly changed its elliptical orbit, and in doing so, began to follow a path which gradually, moment by moment, day by day, took it closer to the sun. And all of man's little devices to stir up the air are now no longer luxuries. They happen to be pitiful and panicky keys to survival. The time is five minutes to twelve, midnight. There is no more darkness. The place is New York City, and this is the eve of the end. Because even at midnight, it's high noon, the hottest day in history, and you're about to spend it in the Twilight Zone. So that's our opening narration, and... Um... So what I want to say first and foremost about the opening narration, I mean, it's a very solid opening narration, brings us into the episode fairly well, um, and gives us like the rest of the exposition that we need and everything. Um, should we have needed it? I don't think it's really needed, but it's not an issue at all because I think it's just written just with that surling beauty. Um, but I do want to mention that when he says this is the eve of the end, that reminded me so much of the wording of the narration for the season one episode, Third from the Sun. And I went back and checked. And the reason that it reminded me of it is because he says that it's the eve of the end in that episode as well. Um, the quote from that opening narration is, for this is the stillness before storm, this is the eve of the end. And I thought that was interesting because they're both, um, <laughs> first of all, they're both episodes of The Twilight Zone that include the word sun in the title. Um, and uh, uh, But they are, they're also about doomed planets and doomed species. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's very, very interesting. So anyway... Um, the actual concept of this episode, like, um, unbearable heat with no dissipation that's only going to increase is an absolute nightmare. I mean, 
This is horrific. Um, this is incredibly, incredibly dire and very, very um, dark and bleak. It is It is a very, I would almost say, kind of out of character bleakness for the Twilight Zone. Um, because it is so just insurmountable. Like, there is no way that the characters in the story can escape their fate. Um, and when I say characters in the story, that also extends to literally the entirety of the planet. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a very depressing episode in that respect. And also I want to share this anecdote and I think I've said it on the podcast before, but, um, I just, I have such an aversion to heat. I, I hate being like too hot. Um, <laughs> um, because, not because, but because because I'm normal and I hate being uncomfortable and everything. <laughs> but also, um, when I lived at home with my parents, like all throughout my teens and early twenties and mid twenties, um, the um, apartment we lived in, the the small townhouse we lived in, um, the bedroom that I was in had no like like no um, the the frame of the windows were very much just uh shitty and any heat or cold or anything from the outside would come into my room and it was right above my window was right above the air vent for the air conditioning so it was completely useless um so if it was 80 or 90 degrees outside it would be probably uh 79 or it would probably be like 80 to 90 degrees in my room um absolutely unbearable so um i relate to these characters on a profound level <laughs> um, but also it's just it sounds just incredibly incredibly like a nightmare so uh, after the opening narration, Norma comes back from a supply run to a store and she talks about, um, how the, cause, cause Mrs. Bronson comes out and says, oh, the store was open. And then she says, oh, it was wide open. There were only a handful of people and they were taking what they could grab. And the acting here from, uh, oh God, what was her name? Um, from Lois Nettleton is phen phenomenal. She's doing a very breathy, um, an exasperated, um, performance like the, perf the, the physical performance of these two women in this episode is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, it really, really sells, um, the atmosphere and the heat and, uh, the uh, discomfort of the episode. It kind of reminds me in terms of physical performances, it reminds me a little bit of Agnes Moorhead in the invaders, um, which, uh, I mean, obviously that episode is all, all her physical performance. And I just feel like it's, it's, uh, the physical performances in this episode should be, um, highlighted as well. So she says, I thought this was a funny line. Um, but Norma says that, uh, <laughs> that it makes her sorry that she was born a woman because she couldn't, uh, she had so much trouble, uh, carrying, carrying the uh the stuff home and and up the stairs and everything so anyway um they go inside and she says that she got fruit juice like a, f a few cans of fruit juice and mrs bronson is super excited about that she wants to open the fruit juice now she goes to get the i think can opener and then um she drops the can of fruit juice and that kind of snaps her out of this light hysteria that mrs bronson is in and that's something that's kind of an overarching thing throughout the episode is Mrs. Bronson's very subtle and, and slow building descent, um, into like losing some of her mental faculties and, and kind of 
having this effect of of exhaustion and and heat exhaustion and um just not having a very clear mind um and also being filled with panic and hysteria is is insane um and so it's just it's it's just a running theme that she's slowly losing her mental faculties and her panicking throughout the episode um causes Norma to become like her de facto job is to comfort Mrs. Bronson. And again, that plays into this communal aspect of this disaster that we're watching. Um, the sense of humanity, all feeling the effects of the same experience and like with their impending doom, impending death, um, and impending extinction from existence shows it breeds this level of community among these two characters that they have to rely on each other and they rely on each other in 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 strong ways and that that is maybe maybe one of my favorite things about this episode and it's maybe me reaching for some light in this darkness of the midnight sun um but it's kind of seems like there's that that that's like this underlying sense of positivity and hopefulness in that when the chips are down and when the humanity has to confront its mortality as a as a as a complete entity of humanity um these are the things that'll happen to you know keep people comforting each other and and uh, keeping people's uh, people's panic in check and everything so i don't know so Norma uh, confronts Mrs. Bronson by telling her that the people in the store were crazy too, and uh, it's really sad. <laughs> it's really sad, but the detail in her description is just amazing. Um, she says, I think I was the calmest person in the store, and one woman just stood in the aisle and cried like a baby, just waiting waiting for someone to, to help her, to come help her. And Again, just absolutely superb writing. I, I absolutely love the writing in this episode. Um, it is just so, just, it's it's immaculate. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. So the radio comes on and the, uh, the radio announcement says that there's a bulletin from the police department uh, telling, uh, telling everyone to keep your doors locked and protect yourself um, because all the police have been assigned to the highways uh, to control the overcrowding and everything. And uh, it may come to the point where citizens remaining in New York City may have to protect themselves. And it's a not-so-subtle foreshadowing for um, what's to come later in the episode, but it is also very welcome... um, world building continued world building um he goes on to say he gives a weather report and the forecast for tomorrow is more of the same only hotter (laughs) and uh then he starts going off script he is broadcasting his panic um about it saying that like what's the point of this what is what is the point of this everyone knows we're about to die it's this is completely fruitless and again, I, I am a sucker for this kind of world building because it is such a great window into the world. And again, phenomenal world building and just really fantastic at showing showing us or telling us in this case um, just how how warranted like Mrs. Bronson's panic is and how dire the situation is. And it's just really, really great. And then Norma kind of takes that and spins it as this... 
I guess, positive to Mrs. Bronson by saying, see, you're not the only one that's frightened. And uh, it's just really, really nice and sweet because it's comfort in the face of chaos and horror. And it's just, I don't know, it's something something really kind of gentle about Norma's, uh, uh, her approach to, to comforting Mrs. Bronson. And so she offers her a glass of grapefruit juice, um, which, first of all, grapefruit juice I'm not a fan of. I think it's kind of gross. But also I can't imagine it being refreshing um, (laughs) because it's gross. But anyway, uh, Mrs. Bronson at first declines it and uh, says that I can't keep living off of you. And Norma says that they'll have to start living off of each other now. And man, again, absolutely poignant, beautiful, succinct beauty in the form of dialogue. Um, it's just communicating the sense of community and this communal trauma that all of humanity in this episode is suffering. And it's just says so much. This is the underlying positivity and the underlying kind of hopefulness for humanity that, um, that I find the most engaging in Serling's scripts throughout the Twilight Zone. And for an episode that is so, so nihilistic and so bleak and uh, fatalistic and just so, so dire for the characters and for humanity and the episode and everything, uh, for a script that's so, so bleak, it's so refreshing and nice to have these little moments of... um, just beauty and and positivity um in the face of of this impending death for, for everyone it's just it's really it's really a nice little oasis um in in the bleak desert of the midnight sun um so anyway so the power go then goes out and what i really love about this from a filmmaking perspective is that the the power shuts down we see the window air conditioner turn off and everything and the music slows down to a stop instead of cutting out entirely which kind of helps further build the tone and atmosphere of the episode itself because it has this melting quality to it it's this audio melting that's slowing it down to a stop and this is a nice counter to the physical melting down that we'll see of the painting at the end of the episode. Um, it's just these little bits and pieces here throughout the episode, along with the score and everything else that happens with the characters and everything, is just so in service. It is all in service to the atmosphere of the episode and that bleak darkness that's coming for all of humanity in this world of the Twilight Zone. Um, and it's just, it's absolutely just again, it is an incredibly immersive episode that I really, really was taken with in the, in that respect. And so, um, yeah. And, and we have now kind of taken this, um, we're now shown that, you know, Norma is the comforting one and Mrs. Bronson is the, is the panicky fatalistic one. And I kind of wondered if Norma's painting was kind of betraying her comforting nature. Um, and maybe the point is, and this is a loose point, but maybe her outlet for her panic is her painting. Like she uses her creativity to put all of her fears and, um, and panic and anxiety onto the canvas. And that's why she's able to, to comfort Mrs. Bronson when she's at her most Miss, Mrs. Bronsonist. Um, (laughs) Uh, Mrs. Bronsonist. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, Mrs. Bronson looks at the paintings and asks Norma to paint something cool today, something pastoral. And then she starts to panic and starts to get like that 
anxious and anger thing. She yells, she picks, she looks at the painting and picks it up and yells, don't paint the sun anymore. Don't paint the sun anymore. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it reminded me of the line of the, of the, uh, of the office scene with, uh, Gabe and Andy and, uh, was it, it was either Toby or Jim, but the, <laughs> uh, the stop talking about the sun, stop talking about the sun. Um, anyway, it just reminded me of that. So anyway, uh, Mrs. Bronson again, can't handle it. She's losing it. And I really, really, really like the, the panic in, uh, in the performance of Betty guard. It is selling it so well in that escalation throughout the episode, is just phenomenal. It she does a great job, and this kind of back and forth between her and Lois Nettleton is absolutely phenomenal. I, I really like the two hander at play in this episode, and also I really like the music in the episode. <laughs> um, so as she's as she's kind of throwing the painting on the ground, and she's kind of doing that, like throwing her fist on the ground and screaming and and yelling not to paint the sun anymore. Um, the music that plays is this piano and it's like, it is, it's not overbearing. I won't say that because I don't have that many, like, I don't have that strong of a vocabulary to kind of explain or articulate what I like about music in shows and stuff. It's a fault of mine. But anyway, um, the way that she, or, or the way that the piano plays there, it's like, it's the first time we've really heard, like, uh, the score being kind of um, prominent in the episode. Everything else has been kind of subtle in tone building, and this is like the big kind of bombastic thing. And throughout the episode, there's this combination of notes that play that play throughout the episode that, again, I can't articulate it because I'm not, uh, like, musically minded or anything, but it gives this kind of ticking clock feel, and there's also that single note that reminded me of The Outer Limits that's played throughout any time. So it's this combination of a single note being, being played, uh, like, for an extended period of time while this these other notes are played underneath it in very short spurts. And it kind of creates this ticking clock feel, this, this kind of, um, this time aspect of it that really makes, makes it, makes the tone of the episode feel like just slightly, like intentionally overbearing and makes it just make your, make your blood pressure rise just a little bit. And it just works really well. Um, so yeah, so then anyway, the next scene, we see that um, it's I, presumably the next day, and it's 120 degrees according to the thermostat, and the sun is bearing down, and Norma gets up and goes to the window, and this I thought was just so great, um, this simple moment where she just reflexively puts her hand on the windowsill, on the window frame, and it burns her, and that it's such a simple scene, it's such a simple effect, but it gives us so much detail to the absolutely insanely bleak and dire situation that they're in in the way that she uses water to to kind of you know treat it a little bit like you get since we've since we've established just how scarce everything is and how like horrible and bleak it is and everything like you feel the like when she pours the water on her hand you feel like the anxiety and, and the tension of her like okay don't don't use too much water because you have a very finite amount of water left <laughs> like it's it's you know you need that because you're burning alive 
Um, it's just, it, it, it just creates this tense moment in the viewer that I just really, really like. And my next note after that is this is so horrifying. <laughs> like the entire episode is so horrifying and I really liked it. Um, so Norma goes across the hall to check on Mrs. Bronson and they're talking. Mrs. Bronson says, yeah, I think I slept for a little bit. Um, and, and I'm doing okay and everything. And then that's where they, when they hear the sound on the roof and they see that the fire exit door, I think at that point it's shut. It is shut. Yeah. And so Norma asks like, Hey, did you lock the roof? And Mrs. Bronson, again, kind of following that theme of her not having all of her like mental faculties with her because of the heat and exhaustion and everything. She says that she doesn't remember if she locked it. Um, she thinks that she did. And then spoiler alert, she did not because the door opens and they run into Norma's apartment. And that's when they hear someone outside. And it is kind of chilling. It is absolutely um, terrifying because the man says, uh, come on out, baby, come on out and be friendly. And like, that is so horrifying and threatening. Like it has this, like it, it has such a, um, a violence throughout it like because you don't know anything about this man and he is speaking to women that are you know um at an invulnerable state and it just has this underlying thing of like oh god this is this could be absolutely horrendous and and horrifying and, and terrible um so norma runs to her kind of uh, an end table and grabs a gun from the drawer and she goes up to the door and she cocks it and she threatens the intruder through the door um and so he's like oh i'm not you know i'm not gonna um uh, i'm not i'm not gonna wrestle with any any woman that has a gun or whatever and so she goes to the window to see if he leaves and he doesn't but mrs bronson still not like showing still showcasing further showcasing how the heat and sleep deprivation have made her lose focus she unlocks the door thinking that he's that it's safe and everything it's very like it tracks well for her character and so that's when the intruder enters and norma points the gun they struggle and in this moment the music plays up this piano melody that feels kind of surreal and incongruous with the rest of the score in the episode. It's like this more like action heavy, um, tone, which fits the scene to an extent, but in, in context with the rest of the episode, it just feels again, surreal and incongruous with the rest of the episode. And it kind of works for me. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's surreal and incongruous in a good way, because this is such a surreal situation that these characters find themselves in that having this music kind of complement that and complement the danger of that, it creates this heightened sense of danger in the scene. So it's, it's, uh, I, I liked it. It was a welcomed, uh, bit of surreal, surrealness in the episode. So the intruder gets the gun away from Norma and then goes to the, first of all, he, he looks at them and, uh, he's like crazy dames. Um, I just thought that was a funny, like kind of, uh, period uh, dialogue, I guess. But he goes to the fridge and drinks all of the water. And it kind of lends the sense of cruelty to him that um, in that moment, like he is sentencing them to a, a quicker death if that's all the water that they have. Um, and it's all for his own, you know, lengthening or, or extending even by a little bit his own impending death. Um, so it gives this cruelty to him. And then that actually leads to his regret with himself here in a few beats. 
And I just, I really, really love this. I, I think it's really good characterization. Um, so he looks at Norma's painting um, of a building with the sun behind it, and he compliments the, pen, the painting. And at first I thought, okay, that's kind of weird. But then uh, Mrs. Bronson asks him to leave them alone and says, we haven't done you any harm. And so that's when he kind of looks down at the gun and he tosses it away um, because like that kind of, that kind of wakes him up a little bit. And he mentions that the painting reminds him of his wife's painting and he talks about his wife and the implication is that his wife is dead. And then that is confirmed in like another couple of lines. He says that he tried to keep her cool, but she couldn't take the heat. And then just the sledgehammer of emotion here, he says, the baby didn't live more than an hour. And then she followed him like, holy crap, just, oh, that is so in keeping with the bleakness of the episode, but also just, holy crap, man. Um, I, I don't know if I'm, if we're to infer that she killed herself after their baby died or that she just died after, after the baby died. I think either interpretation works and it also both interpretations, um, kind of, uh, lend themselves to why this man is an intruder and, and someone who is, who is broken emotionally, um, and morally. And then, uh, but then he kind of wakes up from it and he says, I'm not a housebreaker. I'm a decent man. And just the humanization of the intruder is so interesting to me, um, because it lends to this really incredible, just communal, aspect of it, this human aspect of this episode. And so he says, I've been walking around all day trying to find some water. And so he, he, then he's kind of like, he's going toward the door and then he stops at Mrs. Bronson and he just, he says, please, please forgive me. I'm just off my rocker. And then he goes to the doorway and his closing, his closing dialogue for, uh, for his encounter with these two women is why doesn't it end? Why don't we just burn up? And man, just again, the bleakness, the darkness of this episode is so pervasive and really, really interesting to me because this is another example of like the outside world coming in. And this is the, this is indicative of the whole of humanity in this scenario. And it's just so, so incredible to me. Um, so he leaves and again, that scene was one of the standouts of the episode because it again, gives so much depth to to this apocalyptic world that we find ourselves in, in this episode. And again, it also showcases the communal nature of the apocalypse. And in that respect, it kind of complements or mirrors the scene at the beginning with the Schusters, um, with the neighbors saying like with Mr. Schuster saying that it was good living here and you're good neighbors and everything. It's just that, that over uh, that, that, um, repeated sense of shared trauma and humanity's forced look at uh, mortality in the face of an impending and agonizing death is just really well drawn in this episode. I I really respect it for that again. (laughs) So then Mrs. Bronson, uh, kind of gets up and starts wistfully speaking about the waterfall, um, and, uh, the waterfall near Ithaca, New York, um, which was also a shout out to, uh, Serling's, uh, where Serling kind of grew up. Um, he didn't grow up in Ithaca, but it was nearby, I think. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and she talks about how they can go to Ithaca and swim in the waterfall and swim, swim there. And she says, oh, it's the highest waterfall in this part of the country. And she's just very like, 
out of it and disconnected and just very wistful about it. And then she stares out the window for a beat and then she collapses and dies uh, after sharing that memory of the waterfall. And that is just like that ushers us into the climax of the episode. This is this is the final moment. This is everything is coming to a head now because Norma looks out the window at the sun and we get this just incredibly just quick shot like these quick shots of um of everything coming to a head. We see the painting melting and we see the thermostat just bursting. Um, because it's reached, it's reached its top and it's, it's like, this is the moment where everything is going to come to a head. And just again, Jesus, it's, it's such a bleak, bleak episode. And the thermostat bursting is such amazing atmosphere. It feels like, it feels like, it feels like a blood vessel just popping and it just feels just so violent. Um, and now we see that Norma is now all alone. And so she's looking out and she screams and dies. And like at that moment, I thought that this was the end of the episode. And I was like, that is just so dark and horrific. It ever, like it is so, so dark. And then we get the reveal that <laughs> doesn't lighten it up that much. <laughs> like this isn't, this isn't the reveal of a happy ending and everything because now we get the reveal that there's, we get a shot of the window and there's snow and the thermostat reads that it's negative 10 degrees. And we get the reveal that this was all a fever dream from Norma and the doctor, she, she wakes up uh, on the couch and the doctor says, you've been running a very high fever. Um, and then Mrs. Bronson comforts her and says, she'll be okay. And the doctor agrees that she'll be all right. And, uh, first of all, I just thought that that was such an interesting reversal that in reality, it's Mrs. Bronson. That's the one that's caring for Norma. And in Norma's fever dream, it's the reverse that Mrs. Bronson is the one that's panicking and in dire need of, of comfort. And Norma is there for her. And it's just that, um, in a certain respect, kind of plays to that communal kind of like people helping people kind of, kind of, uh, subtle theme of the episode, I think. So the doctor then kind of brings Mrs. Bronson, um, off to the side and says that, uh, well, there's nothing more I can do. The medicine is pretty much all gone and, uh, I'm not going to be able to come back because I've got a friend with a private plane and we're going to, we're going to, uh, my family is going to, uh, go South. And, uh, Mrs. Bronson's like, Oh yeah, they say that Miami's pretty, is still kind of warm. Um, and then that's kind of the reveal that obviously this is the opposite, that the earth changed its orbit and moved away from the sun. And, uh, and yeah, uh, everyone's still doomed <laughs> that everyone's just going to freeze to death instead of burn to death. Um, and I just found it really fascinating that Norma's fever dream is to create the opposite nightmare for comfort because it's just, it's so, it is so interesting to me because she, is living this life that she's freezing cold. Like everyone is freezing. And then like her, the mental comfort that she gives herself is to create a nightmare of heat. Um, in some respects, it's kind of similar to where is everybody? Um, because, um, Oh God, what was the character's name? Mike, I think in the first episode of the twilight zone. Um, but Earl Holloman's character, he is in, uh, um, 
deprivation tank uh, training for uh, astronaut stuff, and his mind creates this uh, scenario, this nightmare to comfort him, um, to escape his his solitude. It's just, it's really interesting to see the ways that the Twilight Zone creates these alternate realities for people, uh, for characters uh, that aren't very helpful, <laughs> that are just as nightmarish as the reality that they find themselves in, um, if not more so in some cases. So the episode kind of starts to end, and we have Norma saying, uh, looking at Mrs. Bronson saying, isn't it wonderful to have darkness and coolness? Um, and I just thought that that was just, I was blown away by that. I thought that, that was just so, uh, haunting really, <laughs> is the word. And Mrs. Bronson comforting her says, yes, dear, it's wonderful. And what I love about this is that the episode ends with a pan out, like, like it pan the, 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 I'm sorry, the camera pans up and the camera fades out, like it becomes like a black screen. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, given the fact that, you know, it's now dark and, and uh, perpetual darkness outside. So then we get the closing narration, very short from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. The pose of fear, the extremes of how the earth might conceivably be doomed. Minor exercise in the care and feeding of a nightmare. Respectfully submitted by all the thermometer watchers in the Twilight Zone. And so that is the end of the episode. And it's it's a bleak one, guys. It's uh um it is so, so bleak. It's very haunting. And um I just I, I really respect it for the way that Serling takes a very unique, high concept premise and honestly does what Serling does best. He builds character and he builds a community around this event. And it's like, it's surprisingly, it, it has this, this very, very subtle hopefulness to it. But overall, it is kind of surprisingly bleak and overall hopeless, um, especially for a Serling script. Um, I, I, because I kind of get the sense, well, I guess, I mean, it, it it is, he is, he does have some bleak episodes. I'm thinking like the end of the shelter, everything is irre, uh, um, irrevocably changed at the end of the shelter, um, because, um, of, of the events of it. But here is like, everyone's dying. Like everyone is going to die. It's, it's different from third from the sun because no one is able to escape this. There's no spaceship that anyone's escaping the earth from to go to another planet or anything. This is just existing. This is just bleak hopelessness and it's just really dark, but it's welcome because it's, it's a welcome piece of bleakness because the characterization and the subtle underlying message of that communal experience is just so well drawn and fantastic. So overall really liked the episode and, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought it was really good. So I'm going to, I have a few pieces of trivia before I go into my bonus review of science fiction theater, but, uh, yeah, so the, um, the actual like visual effect of the oil paintings melting was done by, uh, having the pictures painted in wax, uh, on the surface of a hot plate. And, um, in addition to that, I guess the episode was shot during the summer and the set didn't have air conditioning and the director 
actually ended up turning up the heat on certain key scenes to create the necessary mood and appearance for the story. Um, so that's interesting, and I wonder if that would really uh, fly today in terms of insurance purposes. Um, it reminds me of the anecdotes about uh, filming in Death Valley in the early early days of the show. Uh, I think when they filmed The Lonely, um, there were be- the everyone had like heat exhaustion and everything. I think the I think the cinematographer actually passed out on that episode, or maybe that was another episode. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, Serling's original script featured two characters who did not appear in the completed episode due to time uh, constraints, and those episodes were a police officer and a refrigerator repairman. Um, Yeah, and then final piece of trivia that I have is that the episode was edited into an episode of the show Medium uh, that was titled Still Life in er, in 2005, and so... Apparently that episode had Patricia Arquette as the titular medium, um, seeing like videos or something that come to life or something like that. So they utilized, uh, Rod Serling's opening narration scene in that episode, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so, so it was included in that episode, but apparently that episode was a, was a, one of those special 3d episodes. So in order to like you use it in that manner, they had to, um, overdub the actual, uh, opening narration. And of course they utilized the talents of one Mark Silverman, who is the official, um, interpretation person for Rod Serling, at least until people hear my read of the plot summary, of uh, this episode early in this episode of the podcast. Um, I assume that I will get contracted to do all, uh, Rod Serling impressions and everything. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's that. So, um, all right, I'm going to round out this episode with a brief non-spoiler review of science fiction theater. And I'm going to play the stinger for that right here. So this episode of Science Fiction Theater is titled The World Below. It is uh, episode 18 uh, from season one of Science Fiction Theater. It originally aired on August 27th, 1955. And uh, the plot synopsis is on a deep sea dive in in a special device. Three men swear that they saw an underwater city, but Navy investigators can find no evidence of the city's existence. This episode was directed by Herbert L. Strock and written by Lee Hewitt, and it stars... Gene Barry, uh, Marjorie Chapman, uh, George Eldridge, and Paul Dubov. Let me double check that because I am curious if I <laughs> had the right uh, notes on there. Anyway, so um, the opening of it uh, has, as it usually does, um, an introduction by Truman Bradley. And in this one, he's talking about how space and the ocean are two regions of the universe that are unexplored by man. And he has this demonstration of a, um, of a balloon blowing, uh, like being blown up until it explodes. And, uh, and yeah, so, okay. Yeah, I did have the correct, 
cast and everything on that, so I was freaking out a little bit. Um, so the balloon kind of blows up until it explodes. It's explaining this. Uh, the experimental aspect of it is showing that that is what would happen to a person in 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 space without a space helmet or you know proper. Um, space suits and everything, um, because of the, the, um, air within their body. And he equates that to like the bends and what would happen if you go too far, um, into the ocean, too far deep into the ocean. So it's an intriguing, um, introduction to the episode. And the episode itself is, like I said, in the synopsis, it's about, um, this expedition to uh, the furthest depths of the ocean and the discovery of a city underneath. And um, it opens with this kind of introduction of this, uh, of this captain, like this submarine captain um, skipper guy named John Forrester. And it's, he's on his first vacation in five years. And I thought that this was really charming and funny because um someone is coming up to the door to knock on the door to alert him that there's an opportunity to go down over a thousand fathoms into the ocean uh, with this special thing. And he wants him to be part of the team. But when the, the character that's knocking on the door, his name is professor Buck Weaver. Um, when he knocks on the door, it's really funny because uh, it's, it's a, it's almost an out of place, like bit of like visual comedy because the door to the house to the door to Forrester's house is covered in signs. And it says like, do not disturb my first, this is my first vacation in five years. It's like, and it's like all over the door and windows and everything. It's so weird and funny. Um, but, uh, and, and it's not, it, it's just not really, um, for any purpose other than comedy. Cause it does, because when he knocks on the door, um, Oh, and Truman Bradley in the opening narration even says that, that Forrester disabled the doorbell. So when the professor knocks on the door and he knocks heavily, Forrester gets up and welcomes him in. And then like we get the setup of the episode. I just thought that was kind of a charming bit of comic relief, I guess, in this episode. So uh, the professor tells Forrester that he has a new specialized submarine and he wants Forrester to helmet because the job is to go down past a thousand fathoms to see what lies underneath the ocean or, or in the farthest depths of the ocean. And, um, after, so after a bit of haranguing, not haranguing, but, um, a bit of convincing and kind of saying that like, Oh, my other, the other teams on this mission are, um, this guy that you worked with during the war and this other guy that you have a lot of respect for. So we're all going to go down there together. And so, uh, then we go and, and so one of the failings of this episode, one of the issues that I have with this episode is it's kind of slow because the next we get the, uh, the actual expedition, but we don't get anything. We get like an insert shot of the submarine, but obviously it's a low budget and everything. So we get the control room that's communicating with it and all of the tension of the actual like depth and, and deep sea stuff rests on the control room characters <laughs> And to say that they sell it uh, is is probably a little too gener generous for it. Um, and then it cuts away because like because like the drama of it is that they actually lose contact with with the ship, and then it transitions to like newsreel footage that's like ex like giving ex uh, exposition about what happened. Like oh you know there was this uh, there had to be an air sea rescue to get them back and one of them died and. 
like it's just it's it's a it's a little bit of whiplash because it's like okay we're just given this vital plot plot element like immediately like just through dialogue through a news footage uh scene it's just it's really weird um so then that's when the one of the things that kind of stood out to me and kind of stuck with me was that the actual news reveals that like oh they found a city at the bottom of the ocean and they they even show the photo of the city that they took in the submarine and that's like our act break and um i thought it was kind of interesting and then i kind of thought oh that wasn't the act break the act break is coming up because i thought it was interesting um because the world knows about the discovery and everything but i was wondering like where's the conflict and what's the deal with one of the men dying because there's like no no context for that i don't think it even says who it is until later in the episode but it's just it's so like it's so unconnected with the rest of it so i was wondering where the conflict was in this episode and then immediately um the conflict uh ushers in the uh act break because it's revealed that they can't find the city when they go back to get the submarine and everything they can't find it and so the men that survived the mission are now facing charges of orchestrating a hoax and for killing the crew member that died in the expedition and so that I thought was pretty compelling. But even then, after that, like the episode itself um, isn't really propulsive after that. It's a pretty dry episode, but it does really play into that science fiction theater thing that I really like in that it takes this scientific approach and scientific explanation for an unbelievable and unexplained phenomenon. And I won't give away how, like what the what happens in it, but it is a pretty solid, solid episode in terms of just, uh, kind of creating science around this, uh, around, uh, cre- creating science, region, reason, logic, and everything around this completely un, un, unexplainable phenomenon. I just really like that aspect of it. So, um, mixed bag, kind of, kind of, uh, a little bit, Eh, uh, kind of a kind of a meh episode of science fiction theater but there was stuff in it that i did appreciate and did like so um yeah i i dug it uh i dug it well enough so that's my very brief spoiler free review of this episode of science fiction theater um and that'll do it for this episode of anthology oh my god why did my voice just make that noise um <laughs> that'll do it for this episode of anthology um yeah, so uh, next week on the podcast, um, I will be reviewing Still Valley, which is episode 11 of season three of The Twilight Zone, um, and I will be uh, pairing that with uh, episode 19 of Science Fiction Theater's first season, which is titled Barrier of Silence. Um, if you don't want to wait until next week, go check out my appearance from a few years ago on uh, submitted for your approval. Um, I was brought on by host Brandon Cruz over there to review Still Valley with him. So if you want to know my thoughts on Still Valley, go check out that episode and uh, and also subscribe to his podcast. Um, I, I think it's kind of uh, he hasn't he hasn't done much with it recently, but it's always a treat when when it pops up. So yeah, uh, yeah, and then that'll do it. Once again, check out. 
um, what's it called? Um, Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, um, for more content that I create and everything. And also check out my other shows, um, obsessive viewer and, uh, tower junkies, a Stephen King podcast where we're going to be reviewing Lisey's story coming up. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening and, uh, have a good one. And, uh, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>
You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah.